How's everybody doing? <laughs> Good? Yeah. Thanks for, for sympathizing with me for a minute. Um, I know I need to ask the Lord's forgiveness. And I, I don't assume that all of you are in exactly the same place that I always am. But but uh, what a beautiful chance to worship. What a beautiful chance to sing. And, and thanks for leading us, fellas. But man, I want to make sure our hearts are right. I think it's a... It's a dangerous thing to come before the Lord and and be scattered, and boy, I do it a lot. And so, praise God for his mercy in that. I need to stand. Borrow this one. Sorry, Ev. Meant to do this before. Um, (laughs) Had you guys seen that video that we showed before? You know, if you can't laugh at yourself, (laughs) then there's something wrong with you. You can react uh, in a couple ways to that. You can react like I did when I saw that they put my picture on the men's retreat slide and be bitter (laughs) because they're making fun of you. Or you can laugh and smile and say, yeah, (laughs) God is good and and we say some funny things in our day and time. And the men do too. Thank God for laughter and (laughs) thank God for joy and that we can can laugh at at what we say. Uh, um, so law what comes to mind when you hear the word law law kind of sends a shiver up your spine doesn't it law the law like uh, like almost like a Halloween costume or something you could dress up in as a law and be scary so what is the law the law sounds like a an intimidating thing. When I hear the law, maybe you think of civil law, or maybe you think of God's law, whatever it is, but it's a word that comes up about 670 times in the Bible, the word law. And it turns out in the Old Testament that God gives about 613 commandments. Did you know that? 613 laws. Oftentimes they're joked about, disregarded, or even uh, thought of as eccentric, non-essential, or... or uh, just not essential to Christian living. But the question is, uh, the thing that comes up most people ask is, what does the law have to do with me? How does this apply to me? What binding or what emphasis does this have on my life? The law. Now, I know the Ten Commandments, and I know I've read through um, some of those, and so I see the 613, but what does that have to do with me? And so we try to categorize, oftentimes Christians do, I say, this law applies to me, but this one doesn't. Or, I like this one, but I don't want know what to do with this one. Uh, but up until recently, I'll admit, or I'll confess to you, that I didn't know or understand or really appreciate what the law was, and why God had given us the law, and what bearing the law had on our lives as believers or in maybe in some of you guys' case, non-believers. What does the law have to do with anything? It's a, it's a confusing thing. And so hopefully we'll clear some of that up tonight. Um, we'll see what the law really is, and hopefully we'll look at it, especially from Jesus' perspective. Let me pray one more time, not just for my sake, but for all of ours, and and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for the ability to laugh. Father, forgive me for having a, a distracted mind so quickly I turn to other things. And thank you that you are the Lord God Almighty who reigns. I pray for your mercy on tonight. Lord, we pray that you'd be pleased with what's taught, 
that you would speak through your word. Thank you, Lord. Father, give us time to meditate, to apply these things to our life. Lord, we don't want to come and go. Help these truths stick, Father. Help us to know what it means to walk in truth, to walk in freedom. We love you, Father. Thank you more for loving us first. So kind to us, Lord. Jesus' name, amen. So the law, the law, the law. What does it have to do with anything? Well, I suppose it matters, especially since we've been talking about Christ and conforming our lives to him, what Jesus said about the law. So what did he say about the law? Uh, Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then in Matthew 22, you guys are familiar with this. Uh, verse 37, it says, Jesus replied, "Love the." and this is after somebody had asked him, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean that Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets? He says that in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I did not come to to destroy or to, to know the law, but to fulfill it. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Christ fulfilled the law in three ways. Listen, these are important. He fulfilled it in three ways. Morally, he kept it perfectly. Jesus lived out the law and obeyed everything in the law perfectly, as we're about to see. Secondly, ceremonially, he, he embodied it. Christ was the types and the signs and the symbols in the law that we see in these days, in these holidays, in these ceremonies, in these celebrations. Christ embodied so many of those. So many of those things were nothing but a precursor. I shouldn't say nothing but that, but they were a precursor to come. They showed Christ. They uh, proclaimed Christ, and Christ embodied and fulfilled those. Third, and finally, judicially, Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law by properly paying for the law, for breaking of the law. When Christ took God's wrath on the cross, he judicially fulfilled the law. John one seventeen says, For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So there's more to understand than just that Jesus fulfilled the law, but he set up a new covenant. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth was realized through Christ Jesus. Christ lived a controversial life, didn't he? I mean, (laughs) as we sort through these gospels and as we go week to week, and as Andy teaches or I teach or as we read about Christ, I think one thing that keeps popping out to me again and again is controversy. My goodness, Christ was in controversy. As we follow Christ fairly chronologically through the Gospels, Andy taught last week on what it was to see Christ in his social life, who he, hang out, who he hung out with, the sinners and the tax collector, who he dined with, and he took some heat for that. So after that, he returns to Jerusalem for a second Passover. He heals a man at the pools of Bethsaida, and next we find him walking through the fields on a Sabbath, and that's where we pick him up today. So it's shortly after where we left off last week. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 12. While we're turning there, what's the deal with the Sabbath anyway? I mean, what's the big deal? We always talk about it, or you've heard it growing up. Uh, most of you probably know that, contrary to, to what lots of people believe, the Sabbath isn't on Sunday, it's on Saturday. Um, I remember specifically crying because I couldn't stay home with Dad <laughs> on Sundays and work. Dad didn't come to church with me. Um, 
and he certainly didn't take Sunday off, but he'd work. And man, I wanted to go chase cows. I wanted to sit on the tractor. I wanted to do what Papa was doing. And I didn't want to go to church. And if he wasn't going, then I wasn't going. But what is it with the Sabbath? A Sabbath is on Saturday. It didn't change all of a sudden magically in the New Testament. It's still on Saturday. Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. That's why we celebrate it then. But uh, Everybody, Matthew 12. Let's talk about the Sabbath a little bit. Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. I'll read to you. At that time, Jesus went throughout the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read that David, when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and how they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but for the priests alone? In verse 5, For you have not, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you, des- but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have, excuse me, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Powerful words, aren't they? So what's going on here? Jesus is walking through the grain fields. This wasn't uncommon in the day, but he's walking through the grain fields with his disciples. And his disciples are picking and and uh, grabbing handfuls of grain as they go by. And they're grinding them in their hands. And it says they're hungry. They maybe haven't stopped to eat that day. In fact, the disciples left everything when they followed Jesus. So they didn't really have anything. So as they're going, they're plucking uh, grain on the Sabbath and they're eating it. Now, in Deuteronomy 23:25, this was okayed. God had said, this is okay. Um, now, you wouldn't go out into your neighbor's field today and go pluck their grain, but in this day, it was, it was common for you to do that. You couldn't thresh grain. You couldn't go to your neighbor's field and cut down his grain and harvest it. But it was okay if you were walking by to grab some grain, grind it in your hand, and, and put it in your mouth. But that's not what the Pharisees were fired up about. They thought that they were working on the Sabbath day. Verse 2 says, The Pharisees saw the Pharisees saw and accused. And I talked about this earlier, but the Old Testament law in these days was still binding. So Jesus, in order to be the perfect sacrifice, had to fulfill the law completely, which means he couldn't violate the Sabbath. Jesus was violating what the Pharisees had set up, but he wasn't violating the Sabbath. Like I mentioned, these kinds of things were okay, but the Pharisees had put strict legalistic things on it. And in verse 3, Jesus says, Have you not read? What does he mean when he says this? Have you not read? This would have been a, a smack to the Pharisees. The teachers of the scriptures. Jesus is saying, You, the teachers of the scriptures, have you not read the scriptures? Do you not know what the scriptures have said? He goes back, this is a serious rebuke. And you can imagine it would have fired the Pharisees up. He says, have you not read? Do you not know what the very books that you teach say? And he takes them back to 1 Samuel. This is a long passage, and so we don't have time to go over the whole thing. But he takes them back, and surely they'd read of this. The Jews regarded David very highly as a prophet, as a warrior, as a king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, we see David fleeing from King Saul. And he's with his men, and he is running from a crazy king that wants to kill him. 
fact, he's already tried to kill him with his spear a couple times. And David is running and he's hungry. And he comes to a temple and there's nothing to eat around except for the consecrated bread. Now, what was the consecrated bread? Twice a week, they cooked 12 loaves of bread. And these went in the temple and these were only for the priests to deal with. This was the consecrated bread. And uh, once a week, when it was time to replace the bread, they would, they would replace it. But only the priest could eat the leftover bread. This was the way the Lord had set it up and no one else was to touch the bread. And yet Jesus points back and say, when, when David was running and he came to the temple and he was starving, he was hungry, the priest sought the Lord's favor on it and then they fed the consecrated bread to David and his men because they were hungry. What's, the, what's Jesus doing here? He's pointing to the heart of the issue, isn't it? The Pharisees had made the Sabbath out to be something entirely different than God wanted. God gave, the, God gave David and his mighty men the bread because they were hungry. As I was reading through this, I was thinking of times that I'd sat and talked with someone or, or maybe I'd given a lesson or whatever it was. And probably most of you can relate with me, but often you've been talking to someone and... Uh, you get done and you're talking to them about it or they come up and talk to you about it and you realize they missed it. Like they didn't just misunderstand you, but they missed it entirely. I remember one time I was, um, had the opportunity to talk at a place and I invited someone that was older but that I cared very, very much about and, and uh, I had lunch with them the next day to follow up and I said, no, what did you learn? What did you think? And, and the the gentleman is a very talented individual and a very gifted speaker. And, and he said, well, he said, you read off your notes quite a bit. And uh, you looked down and you didn't speak real clearly sometimes. And But I thought you did pretty good. I mean, what you said was good. And But yeah, just a few things you can work on. And I thought the only thing that could come to my mind was you missed it. You missed it completely. I mean, I had, with everything that I had, prayed and labored and and taught the gospel the night before, and all he could say was, well, your public speaking was a little off. Now, he didn't mean it. He didn't mean to condone me. He didn't mean to um, slander me. He didn't mean to do any of those things. But he'd entirely missed it. And you know what I'm talking about? You ever had that experience? You realize that God opens eyes, right, and not our words. The Pharisees had missed it. Same sort of thing had gone right over their head. They had missed the whole point of the Sabbath. In fact, they had inflicted some crazy Sabbath rules. If one of your garments of clothing fell on the ground during the Sabbath, they wouldn't let you pick it up. So say your hat fell off on the ground, boy, you're out of luck until Sunday. That's no joke. They couldn't lift something that was heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath day, which meant, of course, that they couldn't wear false teeth because they'd be carrying around in their mouths something heavier than a dried fig. You couldn't wash something for a meal. In fact, you couldn't even really prepare a meal. You had to do it the day before. No fire could be lit or extinguished. That was way too much work to light a fire. And so guess what happened if your house lit on fire? (laughs) You're out of luck, buddy, because you can't put it out. In fact, there's records of Jews being slaughtered on the Sabbath day. 
And one of the historians records that when Rome came in, they built mounds on the Sabbath close to Jerusalem because they knew that they could attack it and they knew the Jews weren't going to do a darn thing on the Sabbath. They'd only work on the Sabbath because the Jews knew they had to sit there and watch them. Pretty incredible. They missed it, didn't they? Totally missed it. They couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath. It's not a big deal. Most of you don't take a bath on the Sabbath anyway, but they couldn't either. Why? Not because taking a bath was too much work, but if they spilled water on the ground, they might be called that they were washing the ground. And so they couldn't take a bath. Pretty incredible, isn't it? I remember being so confused when I was growing up about Sundays and Sabbath and and different religions and what they thought about those things. It's interesting that the Sabbath is the only non-moral commandment out of the ten. The other nine teach us and show us, in fact, the Sabbath does too, but the law is given so that we might know how to love God better, to love man better, and to honor God better. The Sabbath one is the only one that is ceremonial and not moral. The Pharisees had missed it. In fact, Jesus says in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Are you tracking with me? These guys had missed it, totally missed it. How could they miss something so fundamental, so foundational? Christ rose on a Sunday, but again, that's not the Christian Sabbath. On verse 5, we have a similar rebuke, and then he goes on in verse 6. He says, The temple and the Sabbath, verse 6, he says, Have you not read from the law that the Sabbath, excuse me, verse 6, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And what is Jesus saying when he's saying this? What was greater than the, than the temple to the Jews? What? Nothing. Nothing except for God, that is. I mean, the temple was extravagant. It was beautiful. They went, and that was where they found God. So Jesus comes along and he says, I'm greater than the temple. But he doesn't stop there. It gets worse or better, depending on who you ask. Verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, who's the innocent? Jesus and his disciples. It's interesting. Andy talked about this verse last week at Hosea 6.6. They had totally missed it. Do you ever wonder why the Bible doesn't give rules to every single little situation in your life? You ever think about that? Do you wish the Bible would just be more explicit on some certain topic that you have on your mind? Now, the Bible is sufficient for everything in life. But do you ever wish, have you ever sat there and thought, man, I wish God would give me um, a specific word and a specific verse that would tell me exactly what I wanted to know about this. Now, he does that with a lot of things, doesn't he? But not only would it be too much space, we would miss the point. See, God's after the heart. He desires not a sacrifice, but compassion. God is going after the heart. He doesn't give us a law for every single little thing because then all we would ever do is follow rules. And it's easy to do external but not internal. In fact, the Pharisees were awesome at it. That's what they did. Now, there's 613 commandments. I told you that earlier. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. And it builds up to verse 8. Look at verse 8 when he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does this mean? The temple and the Sabbath were the two biggest things for the Jews ever. And Jesus says, I'm more important than the temple, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What is he saying? 
This is difficult for modern day Jews to understand. Meanwhile, Gentiles like most of us, but Jesus is saying, I am Lord. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Last year when you guys were going through Hebrews, Andy explained what the Sabbath was all about, didn't he? What is the Sabbath really? What does it point to? Now it is a day of rest. Back in Genesis 2, we see that God rested on it, but Andy explained that the Sabbath was a perpetual covenant. In fact, along with the rainbow, it's the only thing that's perpetual. It's the only thing that um, is lasting like that. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. Christ is the real Sabbath. Why is he the real Sabbath? Because Christ is the only place where we ever find eternal rest. Not just one day of the week, but every day of the week. We can finally be done laboring to make ourselves acceptable to God. That's what it means to rest on the Sabbath. That's what it means to rest in Christ. That's what it means when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath points to Christ. Now think about other religions for just a second. What distinguishes Christianity? At least one of the things that distinguishes it. Anybody? Grace. See, what is every other religion in the world trying to do? Work. Man, I'm going to earn God's favor. Isn't that so interesting? You talk to people in all parts of the world. Have the privilege to visit with different nationalities. What is the one thing that binds most of them together? Hebrews 2, uh, was it 2.27, I think, says, It is appointed unto men to die once and then to face the judgment. Now, people know that. But what are they waiting for on the judgment? They got the scale system going, don't they? I'm hoping on that day, in fact, most Muslims hope God is in a good mood. That's what they'll tell you. Man, I hope he's in a good mood on that day when I go. That's what distinguishes Christianity from the rest of the world is we have the true Sabbath, the true Christ, and we truly know what it means to rest in Christ. Now, there's a word that Americans hold very close to their hearts, speaking of different nationalities and places and countries, isn't there? This is a word that's... In fact, when lots of people around the world think about America, this is what they think of. This is, we hold this quite tightly to our chests, and, and it's something that many other countries covet. What is it? It's freedom. Freedom. What is freedom? It's a word that's talked about all the time, but it's scarcely defined. What is it? What does it mean to have freedom? And not just physical freedom, but spiritual freedom. It's one thing to be able to say what you want and do what you want to do, at least for the most part. What does it mean to be truly spiritually free? It's interesting, after being to countries where they're not free, communist countries, countries where they're oppressed, things like that, freedom is something that we really do take for granted. It's one thing to be physically free. It's one thing to have freedom of speech. It's entirely another thing to have spiritual freedom. Now, what does that mean? We talk about that a lot, but we don't define that very often. Physical, or excuse me, spiritual freedom was foretold. In fact, in Isaiah 42, 7, it says, to open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison who sit in the darkness in the prison house. God says, I will bring freedom to my people. Isaiah 61, 1, and Christ quotes this in Luke four eighteen. the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. 1 Corinthians 7.22 For he who is called the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he is called while he is free is Christ's slave. The law in itself isn't bad, is it? 
That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the law. What is the law? What comes to mind when you think about the law? Romans 7.12 says that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law itself isn't bad. The law was used and is used to reveal sin. So you can tell someone they're a sinner and they'd probably agree with you. In fact, what's more done in evangelism is said, you know you're not perfect, right? Well, everybody knows they're not perfect. In fact, most people will admit that they're a sinner, even if they don't like that word. But what does that mean? The devil knows he's a sinner. Doesn't he? But you hold our lives up against the holy law of God and we begin to see our lives and our sin in light of what it should really be seen as. An offense against the holy God. That's why we have the law. The law is not bad in and of itself, but bondage to the law. Catch this, bondage to the law means death. This is why when you hear the word law, it should strike fear in you if you're outside of Christ. Because you will be judged by it. And it is perfect. And it's the holy standard. And it's used to draw out sin, to hold up our lives against the law and say, not only am I not worthy, but I've sinned against a perfect God and I have broken his law. Galatians 3, uh, before I do that, Second Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. Now that's freedom. That's liberty. What it truly means to be free. I already told you about the new covenant in John 1.17. He says, the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus Christ, what's he doing? He's at the Last Supper with his disciples in Matthew 26.28. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant given for many for the remission of sins. Christ is setting up something new. Romans or Galatians 3.13, Christ, listen to this one, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ hung on a tree and became a curse for us. What, are, what is man? What is mankind in his natural state? Way back to Genesis 3. God puts a curse on us. And who became accursed for us? Christ did. Romans 7, 4. I'm going to read this from King James. Wherefore, my brothers, ye also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. What happens when we die to the law and die to sin? Who are we married to? What a strong word. What a powerful imagery, isn't it? Romans 7, 4 says we are married to Christ. Romans 10, 4, the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Which of the Old Testament laws are Christians bound by? Which of the Old Testament laws are Christians judged by? None. None. Freedom from the law, and now freedom from the law but bondage to who? Christ. Many are familiar with the word that Paul says over and over and over again. In fact, many, many times in the New Testament, doulos, right? Which means slave. Yeah. Now we have a new master. In fact, Murray Harris, let me read this to you because I think he puts it much better than I ever could. 
says, one of the classical Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to slavery and slavery to freedom. As soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new permanent slavery to Christ. Indeed, the one slavery is terminated precisely in order to allow the other slavery to begin. While that emancipation happens individually, the persons who are set free are not simply isolated slaves of Christ. They form a worldwide community of fellow slaves, all belonging to the one master who purchased their freedom and all committed to obeying and in pleasing him. Really something, isn't it? That we have a master. See, it's not just that we get released from our old master. Then we'd be wandering around free to do whatever we want or think, but we're enslaved to a new master. That's where slavery carries a negative connotation, doesn't it? Mostly because the history of America and what you think of when you think of slavery. But that's because of the slave masters that were slave masters, not because of the word. Romans 7 says we're married to Christ. We have a kind master. We have a good master. That's the difference. Is that now we're in Christ and we have a different master. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Oftentimes, uh, we redefine this freedom as Christians, don't we? In Christian circles, we say, now I'm free in Christ. In fact, that's a common defense, right? When we bring out sin or when the Lord brings out sin in someone's life, I don't, I'm free from that sin. I'm free from guilt. I'm free from all these things. But what does Jesus say and what does Paul say about these things? Don't use your liberty for license. See, we still have that unredeemed humanity, that flesh that dwells within us, that fallenness, that inner man. The inner man has been recreated and been made new. It's been died and crucified, and we've risen to newness in life. Newness in life, Galatians 2.20 says. Galatians 2.4 says, Yet because of the false brothers... In fact, why don't you turn to Galatians 2.4? I don't want you to miss this. Galatians 2, chapter, four, or chapter 2, verse 4, excuse me. We walk a razor blade sometimes in Christianity because on one hand, we don't want to use our liberty for license. Our liberty in Christ, our liberty from the law doesn't give us a liberty to sin. But on the other hand, there are people, whether believers or not, that will try and enslave us again. And that's why this uh, Galatians 2.4 is so important. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. What does this mean? It means you are set free in Christ. And I wish I could articulate the beauty and the freedom and the, and the, the wonderfulness that that is, but we are set free in Christ. And so Paul says, don't let anyone or anything, especially the false brethren here in verse 4, sneak in to spy out the liberty what we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us back into bondage. That's what every other religion does in the world. It says you're free, you've got grace from God, but you need to earn, you need to go back into bondage, you need to do some things. Paul says, don't do that. Don't let anyone do that. Um, John MacArthur says it pretty well here, I'll read to you. This is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. 
Unlike sin, Christ is the perfect master, a point we have already discussed in detail. This is um, from his book, Slave, which I know some of you have read. But the contrast cannot be overstated because it could not be any starker. Sin is the cruelest and most unjust of all masters. Christ is the most loving and merciful. Sin's burden is heavy and loathsome. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Sin traps its slaves in darkness and death. Christ brings light and life to all who have been made alive together with him. Sin diverts, deceives, and destroys. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Insofar as slavery to sin consists of everything hateful and harmful, dreadful and despicable, so slavery to Christ entails everything good, glorious, joyful, and right. Isn't that beautiful? As a kid, I thought I could do whatever I wanted because I'd prayed a prayer when I was little. It just did not add up in my mind to me. And I, I'd asked people over and over this question again, but I could, no one ever had an answer for me. Why, if I'm a Christian, can I not just do whatever I want and ask forgiveness later? That's what freedom meant to me. But here's the reality. If that is what freedom means to you, then you don't understand grace. And you don't understand what it means to be married to Christ. Do you still think that way? When you think about freedom, is it freedom to sin or is it freedom from sin? I had that concept so twisted around in my mind. I didn't want to obey Christ. I just figured I could do whatever I want. Like the kid who steals the bicycle because he didn't get one for Christmas just so he can ask God for forgiveness later. That's not how it is, right? It's backwards. If you abuse freedom openly and consistently, I dare say then you don't understand what grace really is. Hebrews 4 talks about God's rest, what it means to rest in Christ. This is free, biblical freedom. It's freedom to Christ and it's freedom to obey. It's freedom that is so different from the most of the world and even freedom that's so different from how most of Christianity thinks of it. This is freedom to fulfill our creative purposes. This blew my mind when I figured this out. What is freedom? Freedom is freedom to act like we ought to act. Freedom to obey how we ought to obey. Freedom to live how we ought to live. Not freedom to do whatever I want unless whatever I want is to obey Christ. It's to fulfill our creative purposes. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden for a second. Adam and Eve were free, free to obey, free to dwell with God perfectly. Freedom defined, 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. What is freedom? Freedom in Christ is freedom to obey without his commands being like a heavy weight on our back. Now I'll grant that there's times where picking up your Bible and reading it is not the highest thing on your priority list. But some of you know what I'm talking about because you went to church all the time before you got saved. And it was labor. Right? (laughs) Your folks used to drag you there. You'd hide in bed and pretend you were asleep. And you hated going to church. But how many of you know Sunday is your favorite day of the week because you get to see the body of Christ work, you get to hear the word of God preached, and you get to love one another. That's what it looks to live in Christian freedom. His commands aren't burdensome. Now chronologically, if you're still in Matthew 12, Matthew 11 comes just shortly before this. So let me say this in closing, or in wrapping up. Go to Matthew 11. 
This is a passage that I hear messed around with maybe as much as any in the Bible, but it's so rarely clearly defined what this means. Matthew 11, starting in verse uh, 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful set of verses. Weary. What does this word mean? Weary. Um, Cody, I wonder if I could borrow you as an example for just a second. Weary. What does it mean to be weary? Well, what does it mean to be chained up? <laughs> you already said, I don't know if my wife likes it. We should change you guys together. Chain you guys together. This is what it means to be weary, to be chained to be handcuffed. Weary is the arduous toil to please God. It means to labor to try and please God. It's the internal exhaustion. I couldn't put these on his heart, so I put them on his hands. Cody is chained. He feels weary. He feels dismayed. It's the internal exhaustion inside of him that says, I'm so tired of trying to please God on my own. Heavy laden. What does heavy laden mean? This is the external This is the weight that rests on Cody's shoulders and every other unbeliever's shoulders who is tired and every other religion of trying to do righteous things his whole life to approve of God or to have God approve of him. This is for everyone trying to reward themselves with their own righteousness. This is what it looks like to have a false religion, to be in chains. Those are heavy, aren't they? Yeah. It's what it means to be heavy laden with sin. When it says heavy laden, it's not talking about your physics test that you're tired of. So often this is used in evangelism and say, if you're tired of life, just come to Christ. He'll make it all better. What he's saying is, if you're tired of trying to earn your own good, come to Christ. Language is talking about being free from the demands and judgment of the law. What does the yoke mean? I didn't have a wooden yoke, so this is the best I could do. But I assure you, these are pretty heavy. A yoke in those days was used to to talk about bondage. It was stuck over oxen's neck. It was a hard wooden thing. And uh, it meant exactly what it sounds like. They were bound to do exactly what the law said. And that was how they were going to earn God's favor. But what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does it mean to have rest? To be removed and freed from the law. To be free from the demands of sin and false religion. I think you can just... Yeah. To be free internally and externally. Thank you, Cody. Do you see what's going on there? It's not talking about being weary of life. It's talking about being weary of your sin, weary of the law's demands, and coming to Christ when you're tired of earning your own self-righteousness. The Sabbath is done away with in the New Testament. The other nine commandments are reiterated. There's so much activity these days, isn't there? One of the reasons I was excited about giving this is because this 
lesson aligns so well with the semester that most of you guys are in. I go down to the sub and I can almost feel the tension in there. How you doing? Uh, 16 tests this week and 14 homework assignments and I'm just tired. You want to talk? No, I'm tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this is the point in the semester when everyone is just exhausted, just overcome and overwhelmed. It's not talking so much about physical rest here. It's talking about spiritual rest. Come to Christ and rest in Him. Psalm says, Cease striving and know that I am God. Let me read this verse. Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled out the written code that is the law, with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away. And if I had a cross, he'd nail this to the cross. That's what Christ did. He took the chains and he took the written regulations. In Colossians 2 says he nailed them to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Numbers 15 records... a violation of the Sabbath. What's going on there is a young man goes out and he picks up sticks. In the broad daylight, he's laboring on a day that God says rest. If you want to look it up later, it's in Numbers 15. And what happens to this man? In verse 35, Jehovah says, this man must surely be put to death. This man has openly blatantly and purposely violated the law of God in front of all of Israel. And God, Jehovah says, this man must be put to death. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, this is what happens when you neglect the grace of God. Eventually, you too will be put to death for neglecting the law. He is stoned in front of all of Israel. Now in this day and age, you probably won't get stoned, but you will someday die. It's appointed unto men to die once and then face the judgment. And God says, they will not enter my rest. The Bible is so black and white on this issue. Either you're enslaved to the world and sin and the law and Satan is your father. What's it Jesus say to the Pharisees? Your father, the devil. Or you're freed from the law and its demands and its judgments. You're free in Christ and you're enslaved to Christ and the Lord is your Father. Are you resting in Christ? Cease striving and actually pray what we've said so many times in that song, Come Thou Found. Bind my heart, Lord, like a fetter. Like chains, bind my heart to Thee. Once you take a minute and think about you realizing the freedom in Christ, what it means to truly rest and have freedom in Christ. There's so much busyness in this day and age, so much busyness. I was just talking to kindergarten through second graders this morning, and they're just 100 miles an hour. And when they get up, they're going to be more busy and more busy, more technology, more things. Rest in Christ. Let me read this in closing. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yet I rest in thee, beloved. Know what wreath of grace is mine. Know thy certainty of promise and have made it mine. Father, we thank you that we can rest in you. We thank you that we have freedom in you. And we thank you that your word says that we're enslaved to you, a kind master, a good master, 
a Lord who treats his servants well. Not like we would treat them, Lord, but you treat us well. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your kindness. Help us to rest. Help us to realize what it means to rest in you, to cease striving, Lord, from all the busyness and to rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.